In the spring of 1995, Congress was debating the national budget. And according to one newspaper, one portion of the tax cut bill that was being discussed stirred up a lot of controversy. It seems that the, deba the, the debated provision was designed to crack down on wealthy Americans who were renouncing U.S. citizenship to avoid taxes. Yeah, you heard me right. There were some American billionaires who actually chose to move their citizenship to another company, to another country to save money. One shocking, I know. One politician referred to them as Benedict Arnold billionaires. And apparently they did not love their country enough to pay taxes and were willing to go to the great length of renouncing their citizenship in order to avoid them. Well, this morning from our text, the author of Hebrews is giving us a challenge not to how to avoid paying taxes, but how to avoid deliberately sinning against God. Avoid deliberately sinning against God. This portion of Scripture comes in the midst of all these warning passages that the author of Hebrews gives, and we come to one that will extend down into the rest of the chapter, and I had considered doing verses 26 through 39, but it just, it's way too much. There's a lot here. So we're just going to look at verses 26 through 31, Lord willing, next week. In between, hopefully having a baby this week, we'll do 32 through 39. But avoid will, deliberately sinning against God. You say, Pastor, how do I do that? How do I avoid willfully, deliberately sinning against God? Well, may I, may I give you three truths that we need to realize this morning. Three truths that we need to realize from this text about avoiding deliberate sin against God. The first one comes from verses 26 through 27, and it's this. We realize that consequences for our sin are certain. Consequences for our sin are certain. Notice what he says, for if we sin willfully... After we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Now here he's talking about willful sin, not casual or accidental sin. He's talking about willful sin. He notes first here that truth increases accountability. Truth increases accountability. The word willfully means to be deliberate or intentional. An example of intentional sin from our family life is our oldest is now experiencing more and more um, rebellious acts of sin nature <laughs> coming out to the point that he will look at his mom or I and we have told him no whether to touch something or to move something, and he will deliberately do it. So we'll tell him, you know, don't touch that, and he'll go like this. You know, he'll touch it, he'll move it. And it's all that it takes in ourselves to be like, <laughs> that's willful sin. He knew what was wrong, and he's watching me on the live stream, so he's probably be like, oh, dad's talking about me. Um, he knew what was wrong, and he deliberately did it. Okay, that's willful sin. 
That's deliberate sin. It's looking at something that God has said no and doing it anyway. You all could probably come up with a million examples on your end of family or yourself deliberately sinning against God. So the emphasis here, coupled with that word sin, which means to do wrong, is on intentionally doing what God deems to be wicked. If God says, do not lie, and we lie, we intentionally do it. Or do not, do not commit adultery, all those you can go down through the Ten Commandments. It's not about casual sin. It's about deliberate violation of God's standards. That's what he's talking about here. And if we, we willfully do those things, if we willfully sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, was that we're receiving means we need to take in, to personally apply the application of the truth is emphasized here. The word knowledge of the truth means recognition. It's, it's complete knowledge. It's, it's not just partial knowledge. It's complete knowledge of God's truth. Not just the message of salvation, but the entirety of God's word. Some commentators say that this is salvation. I don't think it is. I don't think it's just salvation. I think it's the, 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 entire, the entire embodiment, if you will, of God's truth. Why do I think that? Because he's talking to believers, number one. And number two, he's been talking more than about just salvation through the whole book. Okay? Yes, we've just been come off of um, talking about God, Christ's sacrifice, but if you remember last week, we talked about, okay, what do we do in light of that? Well, that's truth, too, right? That's truth. Let's hold to the confession of our hope without wavering. That's truth. Okay? So he's talking about more than just salvation. He's talking about the entire embodiment of God's truth. So after receiving that truth and knowing that truth and personally applying that truth, if we do willfully sin, there are consequences. Notice, secondly, that works cannot be done to avoid the consequences. There remains no longer a sacrifice for sins. The word no longer uh, refers to a point of, of no more, right? No more in existence. Based upon context here, the reference is to the sacrifices which have already been talked about as not being sufficient, and Christ has fulfilled them all with one sacrifice. So those sacrifices are no longer sufficient. You can't walk up to a priest, confess your sin, and offer sacrifice and be atoned for. Right? Christ has taken all that over once for all. The Old Testament Israelite could walk up to a priest and confess that sin and, and seek to... Uh, Repay, whether it be a physical sin that they committed or do something else. No longer is that option available. There's nothing you and I can do to avoid the consequences. There's no work to be done. The word remains here. The, there, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. The word remains means to be reserved for future appearance or enactment. The grammar here of the word shows that it is a sacrifice accepted by God to be sufficient. That's already happened. Christ has already made that available. So there's nothing we can do post that to make ourselves better in God's sight. There's no sacrifice we can make to appease God's wrath. Christ has already taken care of that. So instead of a work that we can do, and again, some commentators differ with me on this. Um, and I, 
I, this is kind of the position I fall and down upon. I think what the author is doing is he's saying to his readers, especially who, who this would resonate with, if he's writing to, old, to Israelites and Hebrews, he's, he's writing to Jews who, who know what it means to walk up to a temple, offer a sacrifice, and have their sin, that particular sin, atoned for and the consequences in some respect avoided. So he's talking to them, but he's also trying to get them to see that it's, not no, long, it's no longer, not no longer, that's terrible grammar, uh, it's no longer about walking up to the temple and making a sacrifice, it's about expecting that your sacrifice has been taken care of in Christ, but there's still judgment that occurs. There's nothing you, and I, that you or I as believers can do to avoid the consequences of our sin. You know, there's not, no, no, no hole or... Um, place that we can go to to avoid judgment. Sin always has consequences. We, we saw that this morning. If you were in our Sunday school time, you saw that um, in the book of 1 Kings, we we're talking about Abijah. And Abijah just have a, has a brief three-year rule in Jerusalem. And he does some good things. But ultimately, his loyalty is not to God. But yet, because of God's promise to David... He is still on the throne. There is still a descendant of David upon the throne. Because in the text it says in 1 Kings, David was a man after God's own heart. And he followed God. He turned to God. He did what God commanded. And there's this little phrase in there, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And it's amazing that generations later, David's sin still affected his family. And I made the remark, and I'll make it to you now, sin... you cannot tell me that sin doesn't have consequences. It can be current, it can be modern, it can be generational. Sin has consequences. But there remains a certain fearful expectation of judgment. Certain judgment awaits the one who willfully sins. Again, this is willful sin, deliberate, intentional. The word certain means to be expected, and it emphasizes something that is sure to happen. And it's a fearful thing. God's judgment is not something we should look forward to. Again, some believers today think that God is just this nice, happy grandpa who's just on this rocking chair and just comforts and soothes and loves, and that's all he does. Well, that's part of that's true. God does love. God does care. God does show compassion. But God also judges. God also disciplines. We'll get to this in, a, in several weeks in, in chapter 12. Flip over to chapter 12 if you can. Notice in chapter 12, uh, going into verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Why? For whom the Lord loves, he chastens or judges or disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. Yes, God loves. Yes, God cares. Yes, God is compassionate towards us as believers. But God also disciplines. God also judges. So there remains a certain fearful expectation of judgment. And a fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. What does the word indignation mean? It means to be jealous, jealous, ugh, jealous or passionate. It shows God's intense response to sin. I'm thinking of the old, an Old Testament example. 
when, if you remember the Old Testament, Nadab and Abihu, when Israel is wandering, they decide that they will take up as Levites and they will offer what the Bible describes as strange fire to the Lord as an offering. You remember what happens to them? They're disintegrated. They're literally wiped out. They become a, a pile of ash in seconds. Why? Because they deliberately sinned against God. They knew what they were doing was wrong and they still did it anyway. That's fiery zeal. That's passionate judgment. And it will devour the adversaries. What the word devour means means to do away with completely. And coupled with that, the verb will shows future action. There is, there is certain judgment and it is future action, but it will devour, it will, will do away with completely. The word adversaries here are those who are hostile to God, which may include believers. Do you realize that believers can be hostile to God? There are Christians who are hostile to God in their thoughts and their actions, and God's considered as them, yes, his children, but they can also be considered his enemies because they're doing what is against his word. And you say, well, pastor, well, that, that doesn't really make sense. You know, God is loving, God is caring. Yes, God disciplines, but why would God consider his children his adversaries? Consider a couple Old Testament examples for me, uh, with me, please. Because the passion of God, the fiery indignation of God is described in the Old Testament as both consuming his enemies and those who are his children. Listen to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 17. The light, this, is, this, is, this is prophecy um, of God in the future, but listen to what it says. The light of Israel will come, become a, fro, uh, a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. This is the enemies of God are going to be burned up. But notice what God, what the Apostle Paul says about believers who face God's judgment, especially on, God, on judgment day. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Fire is also for believers. Judgment is also for believers. God doesn't just punish his enemies. God punishes those who follow him, who, who sin willfully, who uh, deliberately go against what his word says, whether in words, actions, thoughts. God does bring judgment. So let me ask you a question this morning. God takes, let me make a statement, God takes sin seriously, do you? If you remember the example of Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. The church has been giving offerings. Uh, Barnabas has come and he's given an offering to be used by the church for needs to be met. And Ananias and Sapphira, they say, hey, we're going to do the same thing. But we're not going to tell the whole truth. So Ananias walks into Peter and the apostles and said, here, I've sold this land for so much, here's the money. And Peter says, why have you conspired to, to lie? Why are you lying against God? And the scripture says, when Ananias heard these words, what happens to him? He falls down dead. And he goes out and is buried, and, which was common back in that time. You think that's kind of weird, but that was common. And when you were dead, you were dead. 
<laughs> they had no embalming process. You went through and you were picked up and you were buried right away. And his wife come in about three hours later. Has no clue what had happened. Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this amount of money? And she, she says, yeah, we did. Peter says, why have you conspired? You know, the, the feet of the young man who carried out your husband are, are coming to carry you. And she falls over dead. She's carried out. They were believers. They, they, they walked with God, but in this one area, they decided to deliberately sin against God, and God took them out of the picture. Brothers and sisters, I, I'm not saying this to scare you, but I'm saying this to, to get you to think, to get me to think. God takes sin seriously, and our salvation, our hope in Christ, does not give us a carte blanche to do whatever we want. I'll get to this, and I'll, probably, yeah, I'll get to this later, but I'm going to say it again, Romans chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What does Paul say? God forbid, may it never be. We have been bought with a price. Our responsibility is to walk in holiness and not walk in sin. The believer in Christ should never get to the point where he or she thinks that his, self, his or her salvation is an excuse to sin. I heard an illustration one time, this was given by a pastor on the radio, that there was a, and I don't know if it was a situation that he knew, but anyway, he gave this illustration of he knew a, a, there was a situation where a guy was deliberately in an adulterous affair, would not repent, um, had been going on for some time, and he was eating, I think he was eating in a restaurant or gas station, and um, there was an explosion. He was killed. God can let that happen because of willful sin. So do you take sin seriously? We should. Second truth we should consider this morning is that we need to understand what we do when we sin willfully. Verses 28 and 29. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? God was serious about sin in the Old Testament, and even more so today. What he's doing here in verses 28 and 29 is what we call grammatically using a lesser to greater argument. Okay, this, is, this is logic, is what he's using. So it goes back to the Old Testament law. He said, the one who rejects, what does the word rejected mean? It means to declare null and void or completely reject as being legitimate. And what he's doing is he's pointing out to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 2 through 6. He goes back there to describe the process of this judgment. Listen to what uh, Moses writes and tells the new generation of Israelites as they're about to enter. If there's found within you among you, within you, any one of the gates which your Lord as God gives you, a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God and transgressing his covenant, who has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded, is told you and you hear of it, and you shall inquire diligently, you shall investigate. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed that wicked thing and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. Whoever is deserving of death, here's the qualification, shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Listen to what they had to do. He should not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. One witness. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. 
and afterward all the hands of the, all the people, so you shall put away the evil from among you. Under Moses' law, if there was testimony, it was found to be true, two or three witnesses testified that this person sinned deliberately and was worthy of death. The first people to throw the stone were the witnesses. Because God takes sin seriously. The greater argument is given with the next emphasis. And it's sinning against God by ignoring the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. How much more worse, what does that word much more worse mean? It describes intense severity. And the, and the verb here, suppose, gets, is getting people to think. He's trying to get his audience to think about the ramifications of willful sin. If the violators under God's law, under the law of Moses, died under the evidence of two or three witnesses, the punishment for the willful sin against, under God's Son is beyond deserving and more severe, in that God doesn't need witnesses. The witnesses is His Son. And therefore, they are worthy. What does the word worthy mean? It means to be considered suitable for requital or for receiving something worthy, in this case, death. In this case, consequences and judgment. So God takes it up a notch, right? Old Testament, he was serious, and even in the New Testament, he gets even more serious. What is he serious about? When we sin willfully, we treat Christ and his sacrifice, he, over a few things, he, we treat Christ and his sacrifice as not being worthy of our obedience and consideration. The word trampled underfoot means to look on with scorn or treat with disdain. So when you and I willfully sin, we willfully disobey God's commandments, we know it's wrong, we still do it anyway, we, we, we literally treat Jesus with scorn. We consider him as not worthy of our attention or obedience. It shows that we do not value him or consider what he did for us so that we do not have to sin. It's like a stop sign or a warning sign. Bridge out. You know, if you're driving along the road and you see the, the, the sign bridge out, you're not going to look at it and say, oh, hey, that's a nice sign, and you keep driving. Because you'll end up in the water. It's the same thing. It, when we deliberately sin against God, we are ignoring what Christ did for us, we're treating it with scorn, we're not even considering it, we're not even obeying it, and we're headed toward destruction. That's what we do when we willfully sin. You know, some believers think, oh, it's, it's just a little sin, it's just a little thing. Not according to this. It's a big thing. Any deliberate sin against God, any deliberate violation of his word is, is taken extremely seriously. And we need to do the same. Notice also, when we sin willfully, we also treat Christ's sacrifice as ordinary and not significant. That's the word common. Counted the blood of the covenant which, by which he was sanctified a common thing. It means there's no value to it. It means we, we, when we sin deliberately, we are showing that there's no value to what Christ did, even though there is. And, and we haven't just done it casually or flippantly. Notice, notice the word counted. The word counted means to think or engage in an intellectual process. This isn't just casual sin. This is actually counted sin. Sin that is thought through. Sin that has gone through, okay, if I do this, then I'm going to get this. And then if I do this, I'm going to ignore God and, and disobey God, but that's okay. So I'm going to go... 
you're actually thinking through it. And when you think through it and still do it, you're looking down on the sacrifice of Christ. That his blood of the covenant refers to, to the blood which Christ, by which Christ inaugurated the new covenant. It plays off the language of Exodus 24, verse 8, where it says, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, and behold, behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. You're literally looking at the blood of Christ and saying, it's not worthy, it's not acceptable to me. I'm going to ignore it. You're going to ignore by that which he was sanctified. It points to those who are sanctified under the new covenant. Those who are made holy. It's literally literally ignoring what made you perfect before God. So not only does a believer who willfully sins treat Christ's sacrifice as insignificant, but he also treats God, who initiated and set apart the new covenant, as insignificant as well. And he ignores the cost. He ignores who he is before God. Because he was sanctified by that covenant. He was made holy. He was made perfect before God. And all of that is considered of no value. Let me pause and, and just say this. Do you see how stupid sin is? Right? Do you see how stupid this is? If, if we sin deliberately, and I, I, I have a hard time with believers who come, and not necessarily come to me, but who just say, you know, I, I'm doing this thing, and I, it makes me feel good. Or I want to do this. And I want to look at them and say, and, this, and it may not be personal people I deal with, it just may be things in general. I'm like, do you realize what you're doing? Because what you're doing is you're saying that Christ is no value to you. What he did is no value to you. And it has no significance in my life. I'm just going to go do what I want. You don't think there's judgment coming for that? You don't think there's punishment coming for that? You're not going to get away with it. And that's what we do when we sin. Sin is stupid. Notice also that he notes that when we sin willfully, we insult the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin. The word insult means to outrage. And the imagery is the idea of, of insulting someone by one's actions or attitudes. Have you ever done something for someone? Maybe it was a, a, you, you went out of your way to help them. You went out of your way to provide them, maybe financially or physically, and they totally disregarded your kindness and thoughtfulness. You ever had that happen? How, how does that make you feel? Do you feel insulted, outraged? Uh, maybe an illustration was, might be that you give some money to a homeless man to buy food and he turns around and goes buy cigarettes and beer. <laughs> and totally aside, I, I had the opportunity to go to Las Vegas one time and there are plenty of homeless people around there with signs and everything asking for food. It's kind of funny. There was one guy who had a sign. He says, I'm not going to lie. I need beer and cigarettes. <laughs> I just, I had to applaud him for his honesty. That's what he was looking for for donations, Okay. Not that it's right, but it was funny. Okay? But you feel outraged, don't you? You feel insulted. I, I, I spent this money, I spent this time, and now you're just treating it like it doesn't matter. That's what we do to God's Holy Spirit in us when we sin willfully. We insult Him. We say, your work in my life, both at salvation and in sanctification, doesn't matter. I'm going to do what I want anyway. Yeah, you and I can insult God. 
So, to those who say God is just loving and kind and compassionate, yes, you're right, but you also can insult him. And you need to be careful because he will judge. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation and sanctification. God graciously gave us his spirit salvation. We read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. We all have the same Holy Spirit. And God gave us his spirit so that he can work at, at making us more like him. This is, this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. And he goes through this list. Jumping down to verse 7. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, who, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Paul said, you're going to reject the call to be holy? Guess what? You're rejecting God who also has his Holy Spirit in you. To willfully sin insults the Spirit in his work, showing that we do not value what he is doing on our behalf, how he sanctifies us, how he made us right before God through faith in Christ, and he is continually making us more like him. We're showing by our willful sin that doesn't matter. Again, do you see how stupid sin is? Sin literally takes our perspective of God and changes it to what to point it to ourselves and, and drags us down. Deludes our thoughts to thinking, hey, this is not going to be too bad. This is not going to be too awful. I can go ahead and do this and still be right with God. No, you can't. You've insulted God. You've, you've, you've other, you can grieve the Holy Spirit as we looked in Ephesians. We've trampled God down. We've trampled His Son. We've showed His Son has no value. We've treated the blood that made us right with God as something that is ordinary. It's not special. It's not unique. There's no significance. So let me ask you, do you see what you do when you willfully sin? When I was struggling with a particular sin in my life for a period of eight, nine years, this is what I was doing. I was willfully sinning. I knew it was wrong. I knew I shouldn't do it, but that desire to sin, that temptation to sin was so strong, I went ahead and did it anyway, and I trampled Jesus. I insulted the Spirit. I looked at my salvation as just it was common and there was nothing special to it. And I suffered the consequences for it for many years. And the same it is with you. Maybe you're struggling with something this morning that you know is wrong. And I'm not talking just in, just in peripherals. I'm talking about something specific. You know it's wrong. It could be lying. It could be cheating. It could be a list of anything. So you know it's wrong. And you're still doing it anyway. This is what you're doing when you sin willfully. You treat Jesus with disdain. You treat him with scorn. You add insult to his work. You treat his work on the cross. You treat his death. What we just celebrated is just something that wasn't just it wasn't anything special. And you insult the Holy Spirit. You take his gift of sanctification. You take his gift of, uh, of, of uh, working in your heart to be more like Christ and you just toss it aside showing that it has no value. Do you see what you do 
when you willfully sin. And then third truth that the author of Hebrews wants us to understand here very quickly is that we will experience judgment from God. Verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. God will always avenge himself against sin. The word, that, that verb, we know, points to an intimate knowledge of information. And in this case, the information is about a person. It's not facts. It's about a person. The readers of Hebrews and us as believers today know who God is and how he judges those, go, those who grow astray. Sometimes it's with death. Other times it's severe consequences. So the author of Hebrews goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, which we read this morning, and verse 35 to show that God always takes vengeance on those who go astray. So the context of Deuteronomy 32 is Moses is bringing to, and it's, it occurs in, I believe it's 30 through 32. It, it could be off a little bit. Um, it occurs in those chapters, and it's Moses bringing a, a, what's called a covenantal lawsuit against Israel. He's basically presenting God's case against the nation when they sin and when they go after other gods. Here's what God uh, brings to your attention, shows how you're doing wrong, and here's the judgment. Israel had agreed to follow the Lord God, to keep his ways, and now in light of their future rebellion, God comes to them say, to, to say, here's what's going to happen, and here's how I will respond. And he responds by taking vengeance. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. We don't often think of God as a vengeful God, do we? But yet he does. He does take vengeance. And God, secondly, always will judge his people when they disobey. Verse 36 of Deuteronomy 32, and here the quotation is, the Lord will judge his people. It's interesting. When you go back to Deuteronomy 32, it just says, well, let's go back. Let me go back there just to double-check my notes. Um, Deuteronomy 32, what the author does is he quotes the Septuagint, which changes the words a little bit to make it more readable. But in Deuteronomy 32, 36, it says, For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. The word compassion there in the, in the original language means not compassion in the way of love or showing mercy. It's executing judgment. So, so what the term literally is, for the Lord will judge his people and will execute judgment on his servants. It's not that God is compassionate, um, and God is. Don't, don't get me wrong. But the emphasis there is Judging, passing judgment, giving consequences. God's not always this kind father who sits on his rocking chair and comforts his children. Again, sometimes he acts as a judge and hands out penalties for sins. What did we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning? Many are weak and sick among you, and many what? Sleep. There were some who had mistreated the Lord's Supper, had abused it, who had not taken it seriously, that God had said, no more. You're done. And they died. Just for, mis for, for mistreating a time of remembrance, a time of special memory for what Christ did, God said, you're out of here. I don't know about you, but that if God can take me out of here for mistreating 
the Lord's Supper, that should cause me to fear him even more. Because the Lord will judge. He will execute judgment on his people. And it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. God's presence and his character should discourage sin. The word fearful here has the idea to be frightened or afraid of. Here the emphasis is on true fear of what God could do. I go back to the illustration of the sermon Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards in the late 1700s, well, middle 1700s. He preached this sermon and he didn't hold back. If you go listen, there are actors who retell it, there are, there are books written about it. He literally laid it on a line. He told people where they stood before God if they were not believers. And even believers, they, he kind of emphasized them as well. But he said, God holds you as a spider over a fire. He, he portrayed a God who was wrathful to, towards sin and someone who needed to be feared. And that's the emphasis here. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When God gets a hold of your life in, in, in terms of judgment, it's not something that's going to make you happy. You need to be afraid. The word fall into means to experience a state or condition. And well, who do we fall into? We fall into the living God. And the word living here is an active, active word. God is not like the dead pagan deities. He is a living God who does what he desires, and there is none who can stand against him. When God gets a hold of your life, when God brings judgment, you can't do anything to stop it. He is the living God. And it is therefore frightening when God passes judgment on your life. The author is using this truth to show how truly frightening this can be and gives us, gives his readers, motivation to avoid willfully sinning against this living God. You think about the, the gods of the, of the ancient Near East, the pagan gods, you think of even the Roman or Greek gods. They all had these wonderful things about them and they could bring judgment, but they could not and all these things. And it, it, it could have been up to them. It could have been up to you. No matter, so you could avoid it with sacrifices and different works. When you fall into the hands of a living God in judgment, God will always bring about judgment and it is a terrible thing to go through. For some, it may look like death. For others, it may look like some sort of disease. It could look like a number of things. But the very fact that we could fall into God's judgment into the hands of the living God is a deterrent and should be a deterrent to sin. So let me ask you this question. Do you and I think about God's judgment when we sin? And I'm pretty for sure we would all answer in the negative this morning. Because when we sin willfully against him, we're not thinking about him. We're thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about what we can get out of the experience or whatever we're looking to do. Listen again to the Christ's words in Luke chapter 12. This is parallel to Matthew chapter 10, which we read this morning. He said Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 5, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. After that, have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you, whom to fear? So he's talking to disciples. He's talking to potential followers of his. He says, I warn you, whom to fear? Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast you into hell. Do you realize Jesus talked more about hell than heaven? Why? Because it's reality. There is judgment for unbelievers as well as believers. 
So when you and I are confronted by a temptation to sin, whatever it might be, are we thinking about what the consequences of it from God? That he could bring about devastating consequences when we willfully sin. I hope from this passage of Scripture that we start doing that. Because it is a fearful thing, it is a terrible thing, it is a, a frightening thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Avoiding paying your taxes is a serious issue. Yet avoiding deliberately sinning against God is a much greater task that you and I need to undertake. We realize, first of all, that consequences for our sin are certain. How do we avoid that? We realize that our consequences are certain. They're going to happen. God's going to judge. God doesn't give us a carte blanche because of our salvation in Christ. He disciplines. He judges even those who follow Him. We understand what we do when we willfully sin. We, we trample God. We show that Christ is not important. His work is meaningless. And we insult His Spirit that He's given to us. And we will experience judgment from Him. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So this week, as we face temptation to sin, Let's not do it willingly, for that will only incur God's judgment. Let's instead avoid it and make that, make that attitude of avoiding sin our regular practice until the day He makes us free from sin forever.